Hey, it's Casey Potts, and you've landed in Casey's Corner, a podcast to help us millennial moms overcome the overwhelm of everyday life with confidence, humor, and style. I want you to look at this show as your go-to resource, your virtual bestie, or your secret weapon to sanity. I might not have all the answers, but I'm searching for them just like you. Why don't we find them together? So get comfy and get curious. This is Casey's Corner. Hey everyone, welcome to Casey's Corner. Today's episode, we're gonna get a little bit personal because my guest is someone who specializes in OCD. She's recovering from postpartum OCD herself. Her name is Jenna Overbaugh, and we're going to dive into those intrusive thoughts that sometimes become compulsions and things that you feel like you can't change or that you have to do or something bad's gonna happen. It's definitely something that resonates with me and my anxiety journey. So I was so thrilled when Jenna agreed to sit down with me. Check out the conversation here. Jenna, thank you so much for hanging out with me. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Absolutely. I mean, this is a topic where I feel like uh, the term OCD sometimes gets a little overused and a little generalized, but I think that it's a topic a lot of women struggle with and a lot of moms even don't really feel... um, the connection that maybe they're missing to this kind of diagnosis. So take a minute and tell us who you are, what you do, and how you got into OCD therapy. Yeah. So I always knew that I was a super anxious kid. So I, you know, I started out in school, you know, bouncing around to different schools. Um, I was always really nervous. I would have a stomach ache before going to class. Like, where am I going to sit? Uh, who am I going to talk to? Who am I going to sit with at lunch? And but I, I always, despite that anxiety, I always went for it. Like I always found myself being very competitive with my anxiety. Um, and so it was definitely there, but it didn't really hold me back. At least you would probably never see it holding me back. Um, and so when I went to college uh, and I, I learned about, psych, you know, Psych 101 in my Psych 101 course, we learned about exposure and response prevention, which is actually, it's one of the um, best, uh, most researched, uh, most empirically supported behavioral interventions for mental health. Um, and so it's the gold standard treatment. It's a really well-established and well-studied research-based um, uh exercise and an intervention for OCD, anxiety, and related conditions. And it's all about facing your fears, reducing these safety behaviors that you would typically do to make yourself feel more comfortable, and reducing avoidance. And once I learned that, I was like, this is perfect for me. This is in my bones. I always knew that I wanted to be a therapist, but I didn't want to be that therapist that just like sits and talks and, you know, offers a tissue um, and you know, that's fine if, if people do that, but you know, it just was in me to be more active and to go out and do stuff, be like a little bit more tenacious about it. Um, so from that point, I just really, I focused as much as possible on learning this treatment on learning about this condition and working with this population. Um, and then when I had my four-year-old, um, now four-year-old back in 2018, I really struggled with postpartum o- OCD. Um, it came out really initially, the first one that I noticed was, uh, you know, what if you snap his ankles? Um, it was just a really intrusive and, you know, disturbing, disruptive, ego dystonic thought that came in kind of out of nowhere. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit, but that really rocked my world for a good year and a half or two years before I had to go and do my own treatment. So um, I feel like now that I've kind of been there personally myself, especially with like the thing and the person that I care about most in this whole entire world, which is my son, um, I feel like I can really 
relate even more to this condition and, and to people who have it. And um, yeah, I mean, I just love seeing people get better because OCD and anxiety are so debilitating, but it's the most responsive to treatment. So it's really like in one way it, it sucks, right? Because it's so debilitating, um, but it's also one of the most responsive conditions to treatment. So as the sooner that we can kind of get people knowledgeable about that, the better that we'll all be feeling. So you were experiencing, you know, that anxious feeling as a child, and then you felt the postpartum OCD. Did you ever get a diagnosis officially like early on, or was it not until your postpartum experience? It was not. Yeah. So I never, as a kid, I never went to therapy. Um, Just as, uh, you know, growing up in accessibility, we were kind of, you know, like lower economic status, socioeconomic status. So we didn't have the capability for that. I also don't think that we talked about it as family, right? Like it, it just, my family members are super anxious too. So I kind of thought that it was just the way that it was and that, you know, this is just how life is. Um, when I realized in college that that wasn't actually how some people are. And um, I think it became more obvious, but it became extremely obvious. Like the analogy that I always give people is that, you know, sometimes that generalized anxiety can feel like a rolling storm in the back, like that rolling thunder. It's always there, but it's never like a, you know, a, a like right front and center, um, it's kind of just like always there looming in the background, like that feeling of impending doom. Whereas this obsessive compulsive thought, this, what if you snap your son's ankles? And what if you wanted to do that? Um, and the drawing away and the no longer being able to dress him. And it went into so many other things that felt like the lightning, right? Like very sudden and like this crack of thunder, just very intense, um, very alarming. So that is when eventually I struggled with it for about a year and a half as most therapists, right? Like we aren't the best at taking our own advice. So um, struggled for a year and a half doubting whether I actually had OCD or whether I was just being, you know, a new mom, so on and so forth, kind of gaslighting my own self. But um, yeah, eventually I got to treatment, thank goodness, and got my own diagnosis, went through my own therapy. So um, it was a process, but it was, it, it was a process, but it was worth it. That's so interesting how tightly OCD and anxiety is linked together. I don't think people necessarily realize that, and, and this might be part of that generalization of the term OCD too, right? right. Is that people who have OCD, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I am by no means an expert, I'm only drafting from my own experiences, that if you don't do these routines, if you don't follow uh, or fall for this compulsion, then something bad is going to happen, right? right. There's always some sort of negative link. Is that correct? Yeah. And so that's actually one of my favorite topics. I could probably go on for like a whole podcast episode about that. <laughs> but a lot of people wonder, right? Like, what is the difference between generalized anxiety disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder? And the reality is, is that, you know, we have these words, we have these labels for insurance purposes and for categorical purposes in the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's kind of like our recipe book for um, psychiatric conditions. But when you look at the function behind the conditions, right, we have this thought, we have this uncertainty that leads to a lot of anxiety. We then feel the need to negate that anxiety or get rid of it. And so we do the safety behavior or compulsion to feel better about it. That safety behavior or compulsion just, it, it temporarily makes us feel better, but it just reinforces everything for next time. The cycle that I just described that's both the generalized anxiety disorder cycle and the OCD cycle. It is literally the same thing. And so 
you know, most people would say, oh yeah, generalized anxiety disorder. That's just for people who have um, like real life concerns, right? You know, whereas OCD is more of these like outlandish kind of like out of this world, like out of proportion to the actual threat. Well, that was all built years and years ago when we didn't have COVID, right? We didn't have shootings, right? Like all the time. Um, And so I think we kind of got to this place of like, wow, like nothing is really out that outlandish anymore, (laughs) right? Like, Mm -hmm. are we to put this on a spectrum of like, that's not ever going to happen versus this, this could happen, right? So at the end of the day, you know, like there might be some spectrums that people feel strongly about, like, oh, obsessive compulsive disorder is just more severe versus generalized anxiety disorder is not as severe. I also don't feel super comfortable with that. But at the end of the day, what people need to know is that functionally, there is no difference, that there's truly like, there's no difference really functionally between a worry and an obsession. The treatment for it is also the same. It's always going to come back to exposure and response prevention. So I think that's the important piece, which is that, you know, functionally, they're the same, they operate the same, um, and the treatment for it is, is the same. Interesting. Something just popped into my head as you were talking about that, because I know, so my own personal um, routine and compulsion is that I, it started off cute. My husband and I have been together since high school and we always would give each other like a series of three kisses before we leave when we say hi, whatever, that's our thing. Now it's in my head that if we miss that third one, or if it's not three, something bad's going to happen. And that's uh-huh. always, that's always in my head. And he gets so mad at me. He, he'll do it sometimes on purpose. He'll like forget a third one to see how crazy I go. Yep. <laughs> and, but like, that's how I am. And I'm noticing that setting up routines for my five-year-old daughter, when she Probably doesn't the do these routines, she gets very anxious about it. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like there's a, such a fine line between setting up healthy habits and routines for your child so that they're used to something so that they get through the day or however it might be. And then not making it be something that becomes anxiety inducing. Like where, what's that link? Like when you're kind of trying to teach these things to your kids. Yeah. And it's such a fine line. Right. And so, and the reality is, is that we all have obsessions. Obsessions are simply these recurring thoughts, ideas, images, impulses, commands, or feelings. And you just mentioned a really great example, right? Um, You know, if I don't do this, then what if something bad happens? What if something bad happens? I'm sure so many people out there could resonate with that obsession called a worry, an obsession, an uncertainty, a doubt, whatever it is that you call it. I'm sure so many people could resonate with that. Um, And then, you know, the compulsion for in that situation, we all also have compulsions. We all do things as humans um, to make, you know, weird, quirky things that we do that probably aren't super helpful for us in the long run, but in the moment make us feel better. The problem is when it becomes too distressing and too impairing in your everyday life. So um, when we're actually working through the diagnostic process and someone were to talk to me about their obsessions, you know, their fears, these intrusive thoughts, ideas, images, impulses, or feelings that they have. um, And they also tell me about their compulsions. um, You know, I would also ask them, you know, to what extent do, do these things cause you distress? If someone is saying, you know, oh, it's just like one or two things, like it's really not that big of a deal. Like, you know, I would love for my husband to give me that third kiss, but 
you know, if he doesn't, or if for some reason I forget, it's not that big of a deal. I just move on with my day. It's like, okay, that's probably not OCD. Right. Right, Um, right. because they are able to kind of just notice it and move on. It's a preference versus an urgent need. So someone who has more of an OCD flavor to that would be like, no, absolutely. Like, absolutely not. Like, you know, like I cannot cannot handle it. In a way that's like not, you know, it could be debilitating and it's probably not just that, right? Like it's probably also, they probably also do so many other things, right? Like before they send off emails, before they leave the house, before, um, you know, it's probably not just one or two things, right? It's probably very consistently patterned throughout their day and woven into just their, their life, um, And then that leads me to the last point, which is to what extent is this, to what extent are these obsessions and compulsions really impairing your everyday life? So we think a lot about um, ADLs, which are activities of daily living. So we think about things like brushing your teeth, getting to work on time, um, being able to do the things that just like normal, healthy adults need to do, like laundry, pay the bills, go to work and stuff. But we also are thinking about more enjoyable activities, right? Like, are you able to you know, have a, a, a movie night with your husband um, without constantly worrying about, you know, those three kisses or how the last time, you know, went. Um, and, and again, like it's, it would be one thing for it to just be three times, but what we often see with OCD is it's, it, it often snowballs. So it's often very insidious and it's never enough. Um, people in the past, OCD experts have said that OCD is a glitch in the good enough system um, that, you know, that third kiss, it's not good enough right? So it has to be four. That fourth kiss isn't good enough. So it has to be five. That fifth kiss isn't isn't enough. So it has to be 17, 18. Um, And so you can see, right? Like we are always going to have some things, right? Like there's always going to be some things still in the middle of the night. I will roll over and check to make sure that my four and a half year old is still breathing, even though I know that he just kicked me in the face. So I know (laughs) that he's awake. Right. But it really just becomes like this bigger picture of how distressing is this for you? Do you feel that this is snowballing? Do you feel like this is not within your control as much anymore? Um, And how flexible can you be with it, right? Like people who have OCD are also, they tend to be very rigid. Like it has to be this way. It has to be done in this fashion. It has to be this many times. And if it doesn't happen exactly that way, I can't handle it. If it's more flexible, you know, that's maybe more indicative of uh, of a preference. Um, So. Well, and I think that that's a good segue into this generalization and confusion around, uh, overusing the term OCD, like, oh, I'm OCD. I need this to be here, this to be here, this to be here. And that's really the difference. Like we're talking about, it's, it's not, if it's not there, something bad is going to happen. It's just, that's the way I prefer things. And that's almost more of that type A personality, right? Yes. So, um, that's a difference between, yeah, like that's when we would identify whether something was ego syntonic versus ego dystonic. So, um, when we're talking about OCD, by nature, part of the diagnostic process is that it's ego dystonic. So ego dystonic means um, that they do not want to have that. They do not want to have to keep asking for the third kiss. They do not want to keep doing this or that. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but they feel this need. They feel this compulsion to have to do this. Um, that's where we get the word compulsion from this feeling of being compelled to do it. It's not just a want. Um, so it's ego dystonic, meaning that it's often like inconsistent with their values, that they don't want to have these experiences, that they're having them anyway. Um, whereas someone else, you know, it's maybe more ego syntonic. Um, I was talking to someone earlier, an example that they gave me was that um, one of their friends, uh, they, they don't like it when, uh, I think it was their roommate or something. They don't like it when someone comes in the house with shoes on, um, like, is that OCD or not? Right. And it's like, well, it depends, right? Like, does that person not want to have to put those limits on it? Like they want anything they want, they would love to be able to have shoes in the house, but they feel compelled to not, Mm -hmm. or is it one of those things where it's like, no, I don't want shoes in the house. Like it, I like I'm I'm gonna continue to not have you wear shoes in the house and I'm okay with that. Okay. It's a little bit different. Interesting. So when we're talking about parenting, I think that it's very hard to kind of separate these, like we were talking about routines and again, having things go exactly the way that you want them to, which we know with kids is not at all what happens, but you made a comment about postpartum OCD, which is something I never actually understood or even knew existed. And I'm sure a lot of other people don't know it existed. Um, Tell me kind of how that transpires and what that looks like. Yeah. So there's so many different ways that OCD can manifest. We call them subtypes. Um, but of course, at the end of the day, OCD can latch on to anything. Um, I always tell people that OCD is the doubt disorder. So um, it's wherever you're not tolerating uncertainty where OCD is going to pop up, right? So OCD is really about doubt. Um, it's like the what if disease, um, the what if, what if, what if. Um, and so... Yeah, um, we have these little subtypes, you know, you might have heard about things like contamination OCD or religious OCD, existential OCD, sexual orientation OCD. I could go on and on for every one that I mentioned, there's like eight more that I haven't. Um, And, you know, in 10 years, there will be even more. And that's not because they're new and someone's finally experiencing it for the first time. It's just that more people have been talking, more people have been resonating with that content. And, you know, more people have come to the to the forefront of that community. Um, So even if you don't see yourself identifying with any of the traditional or conventional subtypes or manifestations of OCD, OCD can latch on to anything. Um, But with that said, there are some more commonly experienced or reported themes, um, postpartum being one of them. So that's simply when you have obsessions and compulsions um, around, you know, usually your child, right? Um, And a lot of times we think of it happening with moms, which is absolutely true, but dads are not immune to this either. Um, It's not mom specific. Um, It's actually, we've done research to show that it's not even... Obviously, it happens more um, with a biological child, but it can also happen with adoptive parents. Um, So we know that OCD is a biological and environmental um, influenced condition. So um, you can have OCD, you can have the genetic kind of underpinnings for it, like most mental health conditions, but your environment makes a a big impact on whether or to what extent uh, those expressions come out, right? So Um, you know, things like stressors, having a baby, adopting a child, um, the hormonal changes that certainly happen when you um, have a baby um, and bring a baby home. Those things can all certainly influence the presentation of OCD coming up. And um, 
having a baby is actually, it's so significant of a stressor that it in and of itself, having a baby is in and of itself, its own separate risk factor for developing OCD. So, you know, when we look at risk factors for OCD, we see things like, you know, uh, family history, um, previous experience with OCD, right? Um, we also see, you know, lower socioeconomic status and things like that, like not having access to healthcare, so on and so forth, like you would imagine low social support. Yeah. But then we also see having a baby, like it's like that in and of itself is such a big stressor that it warrants its own line <laughs> in all the informational pamphlets. Um, but yeah, it's obsessions and compulsions around usually your baby or your child. Um, there's really no time frame on it, right? So um, no one's immune to this. No one is kind of like 100% always and forever in the clear. It can happen at any time. Um, but it's about usually, you know, it, it could be whether you're, you know, on purpose or on accident going to harm your baby. Uh, that's a really common one, right? Like, am I going to like, would I throw them down the stairs? Would I throw my baby off the balcony? Um, a lot of moms can be really obsessive and compulsive about contamination, right? Like, it, did I clean everything enough? Um, you know, are there chemicals in that by having other people hold the baby or are they contaminated? Um, a lot of times there are also sexual intrusive thoughts. So we don't often talk about it because they're so taboo. And so especially for moms, it's really difficult to talk about this stuff. Um, but there can be sexual intrusive thoughts. Of course, they're very ego dystonic. Um, again, they don't want to have these thoughts, but they may have sexual intrusive thoughts like, you know, did I, you know, did I look at his penis for too long while he was in the bathtub? Mm -hmm. um, especially dads can struggle with this, like when they're wiping um, specifically their daughters, like for a diaper change or whatever, um, they can struggle with like, did I, did I need to get there as good as I did? Like, did I do that because I actually wanted to look at that or touch that versus just really cleaning my daughter? Um, it can be really debilitating. And you can imagine, right? Like if you don't have the context for these thoughts or, you know, that they don't mean you're a horrible parent, you obviously will probably make the assumption that you're a horrible parent and that you're the only one who thinks that way. And that's yeah, just and, so not true. Oh my gosh, you're so right. I, and you may, I think you made a reel or a post or something about this recently where mostly if you're afraid of these topics and these thoughts, then you're most likely not actually yes. going to act on them. It's yep. the people who don't have those thoughts at all that yeah. you need to worry about, right? Yep. And so that was a, that was a recent research study that came out, which is just like incredible. And I was like, share this with every mom, you know, share it with every professional, you know, who has any contact with a parent whatsoever, because one of the big barriers to getting treatment and help for postpartum OCD is because a lot of times, unfortunately, if you mention this to a practitioner who doesn't know about postpartum OCD or OCD in general, um, a lot of times, and I can't tell you, it happens so often, they're taken away from their children. They're taken away. They're put in an inpatient facility. Um, you know, they have their children taken away from them. And it's like research is now showing and, you know, validating what we always knew to be true, which is that those individuals are the least likely to actually act on those thoughts. Um, so the research study was about um, how moms specifically, if you have these unwanted intrusive thoughts about your baby, um, that you're actually less likely than individuals in the non-clinical population who do not have these thoughts um, to actually act on those thoughts and act on those fears, right? So um, if anything, a mom who comes to you and says, like, I have these awful thoughts about like throwing my baby down the stairs. I don't want to have these thoughts, but I just can't stop thinking about it by, you know, according to that literature and what we've always known to be true in the OCD community, 
she's actually less likely than the average Jane to be harming her baby because she's going to be so vigilant, right? She's probably the last person to be walking down the stairs with her baby. And if she does, she's holding on to that sucker for dear right. life, literally, right? So right. um, it's just, there's so much stigma behind it. There's so much like hush hush about it. And that leads a lot of women to feeling like they're alone. And a lot of the um, statistics that you'll see specifically about postpartum OCD is like, oh, one to 3% of women struggle with postpartum OCD. And that is complete crap because it's like, you're probably asking them the wrong questions, right? Like you're probably not asking them about harm thoughts. You're probably not asking them about sexual intrusive thoughts. You're probably asking them about what you also to believe OCD to be, which is cleanliness and perfectionism and all that stuff. So you're probably missing the actual content that moms resonate with. And then further, what mom is going to tell you that? Like what mom is going to share that with you? That yes, I have sexual intrusive thoughts about my baby. Yes, I have thoughts of killing my son. Like no one is going to willingly say that. And so, you know, when, when women see like, oh yeah, it's only one to 3%. When I ask, at least anonymously, like on my Instagram, although that's not like the most scientific research, you could argue, um, it's like above like 90% of women who can resonate with having these thoughts. So, um, I, I just wish, you know, I wish we could be doing more for our moms and, um, new parents because it's a huge, huge problem. And, and at, at best, even if you're not you know, totally gaslit by your professional, even if you're not separated from your child um, or put in an inpatient facility, I feel like at best, you're just given this label of postpartum depression. Because if a mom is struggling in postpartum, she has postpartum. She has postpartum depression. Like, why? Like, there are lots of people who have OCD and anxiety who aren't depressed, who are not depressed or have secondary depression, right? Like they have this thing first, they have OCD first, but they have become so debilitated by those symptoms that they then become depressed. Like you don't just give someone depression when they come to you for something else. It's just, it's so maddening. It's so maddening. It's interesting that you say that too, because I feel like postpartum depression was not mainstream until what, maybe the late 90s, I guess we can thank Brooke Shields for that. But um, I think then everything kind of like you're saying got bundled into being postpartum depression. But now there are so many additional or um, secondary or maybe even just more specific diagnosis that are not getting, you know, mainstream for lack of a better term. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, you know, postpartum depression is absolutely a problem, hugely yeah. a problem. And I don't want to take away from that whatsoever. Um, I just worry about the individuals out there who it doesn't fit their experience. Right. Like there are so many women out there it, it, to say that is not enough. And to give them that advice is not enough um, because the treatment for depression is a lot different for the treatment for obsessive compulsive disorder. And you're not going to get exposure and response prevention, which is the gold standard and evidence-based treatment for OCD if you have depression. So um, yeah, you're, you're essentially what you would get, unfortunately, is if you actually have obsessive compulsive disorder, or even postpartum anxiety, yet you're given the treatment for depression, which is normally just more of like a cognitive behavioral therapy, a lot of challenging thoughts, a lot of um, kind of reassurance that not only can that not be, can, not only can that be not helpful to OCD, it can also be detrimental because if someone is having, you know, repetitive thoughts that 
you know, I just, every time I cook dinner, I feel like I'm just going to like lash out and harm my baby and like, you know, go after him with this knife. And it's the worst thing that I ever want to think about, but I can't stop thinking about it. This image just won't stop showing up in my head. You know, if if I go to like a regular talk therapist or a general CBT therapist, and they don't have the, the specialization about OCD or about exposure and response prevention, probably what that therapist might do is they might try to challenge that. Well, have you ever done that before? No. Okay. So what does that say about the future? And that might make sense for so many other conditions, but when it comes to OCD, that's really, really awful because the person more than likely already knows that that's illogical. So it's kind of invalidating Mm -hmm. Two, OCD is the doubt disorder. So it's always going to come up with one more, but what if? Like, yeah, I haven't done it before, but what if I do it in the future? So it just, it contributes to this cycle cycle of nothingness. But really what that person would need is not the reassurance that they're a good mom, not the challenging of the cognitive, you know, processes that they're happening. They need experience. They need exposures. They need graduated and um, gradual exposures that are challenging, but manageable where they look at pictures of knives where they hold butter knives in the same house as their baby, where they eventually are holding butter knives in the presence of their baby, where eventually they move on to slightly sharper knives, right? Like, you know, and we don't need to do crazy things like holding a butcher knife right next to your child, but we do need you to be able to cook while your baby's in the house, right? Like we do need you to be able to do normal everyday things. And so that's what exposure therapy is about. And so it's really effective because it gives your brain the experience and you learn through experiences. You can tell your brain the logical stuff all day, but when it comes to anxiety and OCD, you know, there's always going to be one more, but what if, but if you challenge that with repeated experiences of being around knives and having your baby in that home, you will not only habituate, which means you essentially just get used to it and you're not as anxious about it anymore, um, but you also learn, right? You learn like, huh, I've been, you know, cooking with this knife and, you know, I'm sure, you know, anything could happen, but I'm not going to pursue the answers to those questions. And I don't need to avoid knives to to do the things that I need to do and to keep my, my family alive. So, um, it's a really powerful intervention. Um, but unfortunately there's so many barriers to people in general and especially women getting the care that they need. Well, and that's a great way to go into how do women get the care that they need? How do they bring up these things, whether it be to their regular doctor, if they don't have, um, a, you know, a mental health, a mental health specialist or something like that. So <clears throat> I would definitely, especially for moms, I think it is really incredibly important to have that community and peer support. Like I, as a mom, and I'm sure, you know, you could probably resonate with this. uh, There's no amount of medication. There's no amount of therapy that would make me feel as good as knowing that another mom also experienced that. Because I feel like, especially as moms, right, we take it so personally and we're so hard on ourselves um, and we don't give ourselves that compassion. Uh, We only see how we're failing. But if someone else can kind of come out of the woodworks and say, oh yeah, I've had those thoughts before too. It reminds you that you are not crazy, that you are not alone, that you are not a horrible parent and that this is just really hard and you know that you're not as isolated as maybe you think that you are. So for moms, especially, I think having like that peer support, that community support is so important. Um, 
But above and beyond that, if you feel like you have OCD, and even if you have anxiety, because it's really the treatment of choice for anxiety related conditions too, um, I would absolutely work to find somebody who does exposure and response prevention. So might also see it as ERP. Um, Unfortunately, it's not enough to see someone who says that they do CBT. So CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. That's a very general kind of umbrella term. Underneath that CBT umbrella term, there are are a lot of more specified interventions like acceptance and commitment therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy. We also have exposure and response prevention. So looking at it that way, we can see that ERP is a CBT intervention, but that doesn't necessarily mean if someone does CBT that they do ERP. So I know there's a lot of like acronyms there and letters, but, um, you know, you might go on to psychology today and see that someone specializes in OCD and treats it with CBT. That might be okay, but it also might not be okay. So you really want to make sure that you are seeing someone who specializes in exposure and response prevention. Um, Research shows that it is more effective for OCD and anxiety than any other treatment for any other condition. It is absolutely incredible. and regardless of what subtype you're struggling with or what anxiety you have or any of those nuances, it can be really, really helpful. It's just an incredible, you know, it it's, teaches you skills that I wish I had as a kid. So um, it's just really, really amazing. So um, finding a, a therapist who really specializes in that, I think is really helpful. There's tons of education out there too about OCD. Um, you know, the International OC, the International OCD Foundation uh, website, that's iocdf.org is super rich and um, wealthy when it comes to resources like that, that are really reputable. Um, so education, making sure that it's good education, finding an ERP provider, um, and uh, yeah, finding, especially as moms, finding that peer support, I think are all really, really important. It is, it is. And I know you are extremely busy because not only are you a practicing therapist, but you also are a podcast host. And tell me about this amazing organization that you have as well, No CD. What is that? Yeah, so No CD, uh, we are a teletherapy platform. So we provide teletherapy services to uh, people who have OCD and anxiety con- uh, related conditions. Um, it's available actually in and out of the United States, which I know is pretty unique because. Uh, you know, there are so many people out there. There are so many like resourceless places in the United States, but then you think about, you know, other countries too, and it's just even worse. So um, it is, uh, you can get therapy, you can get one-on-one therapy. We are all trained in ERP. Um, I've been doing this, like I said, since 2008, but I stand by the training. They're all amazing. Um, and you also get support in between sessions too. So you have the ability to kind of message your therapist in between sessions. We offer 25 plus support groups, um, which is, you know, relevant to our mom conversation. We actually offer two separate support groups for moms who have OCD. So, um, really would be a great opportunity for anyone there. Um, if they feel like they need that added level of support, but even if you can't do therapy or you're not there yet, we have a free app and it's not one of those apps where it's like seven days. Um, and then you have to get charged for it. It's like, seriously, it's free. Um, we have a free in-app community, you know, you can go and be with people who can resonate with you. Uh, we have free tools, uh, where you can like start to enter in your own exposures and you can enter in your rituals. So you can start to monitor those and try not to do them as much. Lots and lots of free resources. Um, you know, we just all feel really strongly about 
OCD can be so debilitating. It can be so, so debilitating. Um, but it, it's, it's wild because it's also the most treatable condition. So, um, it seems like such a simple problem to fix if we can just like make it more accessible for people. So, um, you can, you know, download that by going to treat my OCD on the app store. It's a really great resource. Um, and then nocd.com, um, if you're interested in therapy services, but we're over on social media too. So you'd find me on social media. Um, I'm at, at jenna.overbaugh on Instagram, but then nocd is over at treat my OCD. So lots of different places for you to explore. Um, so many places we'll link them all in the show notes for sure. So don't worry about that if you're listening or watching. Um, but again, you are also a podcast host and your show is called all the hard things. Um, tell us about kind of some of the episodes that are really big standouts in your brain or some of your most exciting episodes that you want everyone to tune into. Yeah. So if you feel like you've been resonating with or just need some more uh, information to learn more about this, my podcast is a great uh, supplement for that just to kind of keep me in your ears at all times. Um, so yeah, it's called All the Hard Things Available Wherever You Listen to Podcasts. Um, over a hundred episodes now, my gosh, but some of the most uh, impactful episodes uh, most downloaded, I would say are about our topic that we discussed, uh, which is about like GAD versus OCD, right? So that generalized anxiety disorder versus OCD. I think I actually have three separate episodes about that. Like it's a three-part series because I, I go that, so yeah. in depth um, about like essentially making my case for it doesn't matter. Um, you know, like people ask that question all the time, like multiple times a day, I get that question. Um, and I, in that, in those episodes, I essentially make a point as to why it does not matter and what people need to do anyway. Um, so those are really, you know, awesome episodes. People out there also struggle a lot with rumination. Rumination is, you might also call it just worrying. Um, again, there's no really functional. I've never heard that terminology before. Right. So cool. um, rumination and worrying, they're really functionally the same. Um, so rumination is more thought about like with OCD, whereas worrying is obviously thought about belonging more to GAD. But again, if we're making the case that those two things are functionally the same, then we would also have to make the case that rumination and worrying are also the same, right? So, which I believe they are. Um, and so I also have a three-part episode, I believe, on um, mental compulsions and how to um, resist your worry, worrying rather, um, how to kind of uh, you know, witness that and acknowledge it sooner rather than later, the benefit of sitting with uncertainty, um, OCD and anxiety at its core often boil down to the intolerance of uncertainty and our pursuit and trying to be 100% sure. Um, and so we talk about the benefit of being able to kind of, you know, not answer anxiety's questions and not answer OCD's questions. Um, and yeah, oh my gosh, so many of my favorites, but I'm kind of biased. So check it out. Check it out. <laughs> them all. That's that's the easy answer. That's what you do. Listen to the whole series. Amazing. So I'm going to ask you a question as we wrap up that I ask um, all of my guests. And I feel like this is actually so on topic for you because oh gosh. <laughs> my question that I ask everyone is if you could go back and be any age again, what age would you go back to being? Oh my gosh. Would I be there forever or just for like a day? To go back and then to give that age of you some advice. Um, I have chills. I have so many <laughs> different things. Like, do I want to go more professional or do I want to go more? Huh? I would go back to when I was really struggling um, with my postpartum OCD 
it got so bad. <laughs> I know I didn't really go too, too far into it, but it got so bad that I wanted to roll out of a moving car. Like that was always the image that I had. I just, I would sit in the back seat, um, trying to like console my son if he was upset. And I would just have these images uh, that I wanted, right? Like it wasn't, e- it was egocentric. I wanted to just like open the door and roll out. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess what I would go back and tell myself, I, I always felt like there has to be light at the end of this tunnel. Like I don't see it, but I had faith in it. Um, and I think that's what kept me in the car so many times, right? Like I couldn't see it. I don't know. I didn't know when it was coming. I didn't know what I needed to do to get there, but I knew it was there. Like I just had faith that it was there. And I knew that if I just stuck around a little bit more, you know, that I would figure it out and that I would get there. And, um, I would go back and remind myself that like, absolutely it's there. And that not only are you going to be able to feel like your old self again, but that like, you're going to come back 10 times stronger. You're going to come back and be such a better therapist. You're going to be a better mom because of all the things that you've gone through. Your relationship is going to be better. Um, I think so often, you know, when we're in the trenches of whatever mental health condition it is, we always want to just get back to ourselves, right? We just want to get back to where we were before our brain broke is what I hear a lot. Like, I just want to get back to where I was before my brain broke. Um, Don't limit yourself to that. Like, you can go on and be even better. Um, Like, this is not a life sentence. You can go on and live even better. You don't want to go back. Um, you can absolutely go on and be better in every form in every way. Um, so if you, if you feel that, like I did, um, you, you don't know where the light is. You, it's so far away that you can't see it, but you just know that it's there and you keep trucking along. Um, it most definitely is there. You bring up such a great image for, I think a lot of moms, and this goes back to our conversation around community and just having that sense of you're not alone, that I will a hundred percent agree with the fact that there were times, there are still times where I'm like, sometimes I just wish or hope where, and here's my OCD or my compulsion when I knock on some wood that I don't say it, but like that you get injured or that you're in a car accident or something just to have some time away or you know there's a joke about it in that movie bad moms where she's like does anyone just want to like have a hospital stay for a week you don't have to get seriously injured but there were times that I was like I just want this to end I want the nagging to stop I want the crying to stop and it's not necessarily wishing harm on the child but you you wish harm on yourself because you just want it to end and you know for those of you listening I'm sure there are so many who this resonates with and clearly between myself, between Jenna, like we all are feeling this or we all have felt this before. And again, going back to our earlier discussion, it's 100% normal and not the, um, not the thing that you need to worry about actually happening (laughs) because you are acknowledging it is such a better sign than letting yourself continue to worry that it's actually going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. And it's even harder when we or when our brains rather try to convince us that we're the only one who feels that way because it's yes. just so not true. Yes, because it's it's shameful, right? You feel this mm-hmm. this um, this moment of shame and this moment of how can I be thinking this way when I have this beautiful child, I live this beautiful right. life and you know, Don't you just love every minute. Yes. Like how can I not be grateful? How can I not be living in the moment? But really you just want to throw yourself out of a moving car or run headfirst into a cement wall or however, whatever that looks like in your head. Um, it's real and it's, 
very, very common. So yeah. And, and something that saved me with that, because I felt that way too, right? Like, especially poignant was because I had a lot of friends and family members at the time who really struggled with fertility and conceiving and I got pregnant right away. Um, and so I struggled a lot with like that guilt of, you know, like you have this baby, other people would do anything to have this baby. And here you are and you are, you know, whatever struggling in this way, so on and so forth. Like, how dare you? Um, and it's like, you can feel two things at the same time, right? Like we're human. We can feel grateful and miserable. Like, yes, I am grateful for the fact that I have this baby. And at the end of the day, I wouldn't change anything. I'm also really struggling right now. This is really freaking hard. And it's way harder than I ever thought that it would be. Um, so you can experience two emotions at the same time and they don't, they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. I hate that there's such shame in struggling. And there, I talked about it recently in another episode too, about having uh, this constant message that gets thrown to us about having to do all the things, right? Like it's so Mm -hmm. exhausting there. I don't think there's actually anyone who's doing all the things you might see their shiny persona on social media, but they're not actually doing all the things. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Oh my goodness. Well, Jenna, I want to know what's next for you. What's kind of coming down the pipeline, anything fun and exciting you can share? Oh my gosh. So, uh, yeah, I'm always on Instagram. I'm always adding to my podcast. Um, I'm just, yeah, I'm just kind of living in, in that moment right now. Also trying to just like, stay in my recovery. You know, I still have days where I certainly need to like get back into exposure mode and do the things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm trying, I I feel that, right. Like, I feel like I too have this urge to like do all the things and like, what's the next best thing? What's the next best thing. And I'm like, I need to get better at like just eating more mindfully, like instead of like piling on the next professional goal (laughs) or instead of like adding this new thing, like I, I'm going to try to take care of myself a little bit. And that feels like really irresponsible. Like I'm being complacent, but you know, I, I had another podcast scheduled for tonight, but I'm like, you know what? Like my son told me yesterday that he was upset that I was on my phone too much. So I canceled it. That hurt. My daughter, she's made that comment a couple of times and I'm like, okay. Yeah. So I'm like, you know what? Like, I'm just trying to evaluate like what's important. And OCD recovery is a lot about that. It's a lot about like, you know, making decisions based in your values versus fear and worry and all the things that you feel like you are compelled to do. Right. So, you know, I'm sure you can relate. I often feel too this compulsion, this compellingness to do, 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 do and schedule, schedule. And it's like, you know, I don't know that that's actually in line with my values all that much. So, so Yeah. I don't know, probably just taking care of myself a little bit. I'm sure you were probably hoping for like a more exciting answer, but I no, think I'm just that, hanging out here for a little bit. I That is completely fine. You can chill wherever you are comfortable. Do not feel the need to do all the things, um, but keep doing what you're doing because you're helping a lot of people. No, oh, thanks. I hope so. I forget oh. that sometimes. I try, like, I get nervous with these things and I like have to, in order to do it, I have to kind of convince myself, like, it's just for fun. Like, we're just going to have a conversation. But then when I realize that other people have listened to it, like, oh my gosh, I saw, I heard you on that podcast the other day. It's really wonderful, but it's also very surreal. So I hope that it was helpful. It was. It was for me. At least I know. I'm just glad I found you because a lot of your tips and tricks and reels and your content definitely oh. resonate with me. So I know that it will resonate with some of the rest of our listeners on over here on Casey's Corner. Thank you so much. It was such an honor to come on. And thank you again. Thank you All so right. much. We'll be chatting soon. I know. Awesome. Thanks, Jenna. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. Be sure to rate and review the episode or better yet, do me a favor and go ahead and give this a share over on your social media. If you're on Instagram, be sure to share it in your stories and tag me at it's Casey Potts and I'll be sure to send some love right back. Stay tuned for more podcast episodes. You can also find me over on Instagram or on YouTube by searching Casey's Corner with Case. See you real soon.